everyone, I'm Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Dr. Kathy King and I want you to know you are important to us. We are thrilled that you're here with us today for another episode of Writing Works Wonders. We're so pleased you're with us for this outstanding interview with Craig Johnson. We know you'll enjoy the fun as we discover the inside story of his much loved and award-winning Western crime mysteries. Get ready for another episode full of learning, laughter, and new ideas for readers and writers. So slap on your cowboy hat, saddle up your pony, and get ready for a Wyoming reading and writing adventure with your fellow cowpokes at Writing Works Wonders. I'm Dr. Kathy King, wearing my favorite cowboy hat again. And I'm so pleased to introduce you to my favorite cowpoke and also my favorite co-host, Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Hi, everybody. Hi, Kathy. Have you ever been called a cowpoke before? No, that I haven't been called a cowpoke. We are so glad to be here. Yeehaw! It's my great pleasure to introduce, zooming in with us straight from Wyoming, Craig Johnson the author of the Longmire series. Some of us read his books, others watch him on Netflix, and many of us enjoy both. Hi, Craig. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. You know, the fact that I'm able to enjoy and be a part of this lovely show, like it all the way from Ucross, Wyoming, population 25, technologically is amazing to me. So I'm just kind of stunned that we're able to do this at all. Like, uh, thank you guys for having me. Isn't it amazing? Technology is fabulous. Getting better <laughs> all the time. So in, so in the Longmire series, you write in first person and we all love your book. How much of Longmire is Craig Johnson? <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a story about that, especially because I don't get a chance to talk about it. There was one time I was doing a, a panel at the Tucson Book Festival a few years back, and it was a large grouping of writers. And somehow they got on the, the point of trashing, you know, novels that were written in the first person. And there I sat with this series of books, every single one of them written in the first person. And they're working their way down the line, like, and they, they finally get to me, and I get ready to open my mouth. And, you know, everybody had you know, trashed it. And I thought, OK, well, what am I going to do to defend the first person tense? And Richard Russo, the marvelous writer from Maine, was uh, actually sitting beside me. And before I could get a word out, he leans forward and goes, call me Ishmael. And that was it. It was like a literary body slam. Nobody had anything else to say at that point. But, yeah, I don't know. In answer to your question, uh, whenever you write, especially in first person, you're definitely going to have to keep the cards a little close to your vest. But there, there are differences between Walt Longmire and I. I think my wife actually has the best quote about that. She says that Walt Longmire is who Craig Johnson would like to be here in about 10 years. It's just that he's off to an incredibly slow start. And there's probably <laughs> more truth to that than I'm willing to admit. Like that, uh, I, Walt's got a lot of qualities that I aspire to. I think he's got an extraordinary patience. He's got a razor-sharp intellect. He kind of de depends on people underestimating him, you know, and thinking that he's just a dumb cowboy in many ways, like at the sheriff of the least populated county in the least populated state. You know, in all actuality, he's a... Uh, He's quite a detective. He's kind of a world-class detective. He just happens to live in the least populated county and the least populated state. And so 
I aspire to a lot of his, his character traits. Like there's some I don't, you know, because he's had a lot of tragedy, you know, in his life. Mm-hmm. A lot of things have happened to him that I've been fortunate enough to to not have happen in my life. Like I think it's equal parts. You know, I admire him mm-hmm. in some ways, and I'm I'm happy to not be him in others. Walt is well read. I love the quotes that he comes up with in the situations and dialogue. Thank you. Well, that was actually <laughs> one of the things for me that was kind of important as far as the development of the character when I first started writing. The very first Walt Longmire novel, The Cold Dish, Walt wasn't that smart. You know, he wasn't that smart. And I thought, you know what? I don't know if I want to be trapped in this guy's head for 400 pages. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know what? He should have an education like that. He should have some background to draw from. And I I just, you know, I thought, well, what do I want to use like to to give him that intellect that he has? And I stumbled onto this one thing that happened. Like I thought, you know what? I'm going to make him a reader is what I'm Mm going to do. Like, And uh, that's actually been one of the things that an awful lot of readers have picked up on. Walt, you know, is one of them. They enjoy, you know, all of those literary illusions, like and all the things, you know, that Walt says and and alludes to. That that honestly was something that I just stumbled upon, and I'm really very proud of now. Have there been any other authors and books that inspired you? Oh my goodness, yes. The biggest question you always get asked is, how do you become a writer? Like, well, the first mm-hmm. thing is, is you have to be a reader. And so I, I grew up in one of those families that our idea of hell was to be caught somewhere without a book. We had stacks of books everywhere when I was growing up. And so to me, you know, reading became kind of second nature, almost like reading or eating or anything else that keeps you alive. It's only those of us who listen to books like that or actually read books like it know the benefit of that. It's one of the only forms that I know of that really relies so much on the reader's imagination. Like it, I mean, you know, everybody talks about movies and TV and all these things, and that's really wonderful. But they're basically making all your choices for you. They're casting mm-hmm. it. They're, you know, doing the wardrobe. They're picking the sets, you know, their locations and all of these things. Whereas, you know, with a good book, you know, all you have are words. You know, you just line up those words and just tip them over like dominoes like that and then you just let the reader's imagination do the work for you from then on the only thing that i can think of you know that gives you know a book a run for its money would be the old days the old radio theater you know where all you had was the sound and the rest of it was left up to your imagination and i just can't help but think that that develops you know a certain aspect of your intellect and of your mind that a lot of people you know are, are not using as much as maybe they should That's how we explain our round robin improvs. We do them periodically and they're a big hit with everybody. And we come up with a scenario and everyone's thinking on the spot. They're raising hand, going in order. And then all of a sudden they've got to come up with the next part of what's happening in that story after they hear what the person in front of them did. And they're really... We have talented people and we laugh. We have a great time. Oh my goodness. It's, yeah, and it's know, like a room full of authors. It's like that. Yeah. Got like yeah. A, a yeah. Slew and it's like, it is. It's like that radio, you know, we have to think of old time radio because people are just listening to the dialogue and we put in a little <laughs> bit of what's going on, but it's really a lot of fun. And all of our community enjoy that. Whenever people yeah. ask me what it is that I really do, my response is always, well, I, I go into a room and type about my imaginary friends all day is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. Yeah. We always get invited like to do all kinds of like events. I see what I'm doing the let's see the Western Sheriff's Association meeting in Reno uh, here next uh, week. Like and then going down to the you know Tucson Book Festival. I get invited to do an awful lot of of, of live events like that. And uh I'm always reminding people that just because you know people are writers doesn't necessarily mean they have good social skills. I mean we're kind of hermits, <laughs> you know, who sit in rooms, you know, with our typewriters and talk to ourselves all day. Like so that sometimes doesn't lend itself to great social skills. I don't know. 
don't like it, but I like getting out and talking with people and enjoying it. Like it. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Like that, that you get a big response, that kind of hands-on kind yeah. of work. I mean, that that's, that's where the fun begins. It's just a blast. You know, it brings you back right. to, in my, in many ways, I think almost to your childhood, you know, when your imagination is you know, yeah. so alive and so fervent, you know, I don't know, life takes a hand and kind of like, you know, scrubs that down to a point where it almost disappears and you kind of have to cultivate it like that to try and keep it alive. And I think it's, uh, it's very important, very important to keep that imagination, you know, alive and well. Talking about your imaginary friends that you bring to life, some of your characters in your book, like Vic or Henry, um, whoever you want to mention, were they characters that had developed over time or did you have some idea of these characters ahead of time? I know they've developed their characteristics. Where did they come from? Do you have other people in mind when you're writing or... One of, my, one of my favorite quotes about writing is the one from Wallace Stegner, the wonderful writing teacher from Stanford. There's a lovely book, you know, that his wife and son put together from his lectures after he had passed away. The, the quotes at the very beginning on writing and teaching fiction, where he says, the greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says, nobody in this book is based off anybody alive or dead. And, you know, what a crock that is. I mean, that's your job, you know, to go out and find interesting people, include them in their books. I mean, I'm always telling people when I'm signing books, if you stand here and talk with me for more than 20 seconds, you're taking your literary life in your hands, just so you know. For me, that's one of the joys. Like, it also is like to take these interesting people that I know and celebrate them like that and uh, memorialize some of them like that. Because in the 17 years that I've done this, like there have been some of those people that have passed on. But they haven't passed on in my books. They're still alive and well, like it and uh, show mm -hmm. up every September with a book release. Generally, you're never going to come up with somebody who's exactly what you need for a character in your books. And so at that point in time, it's a jumping off point. And then you have to like cultivate that character and make the character that you need to tell the story that you're going to tell. An awful lot of the times whenever I'm teaching classes and writing, I'll tell students, don't overly concentrate on the physicality of your character, because in all actuality, you're only going to be able to describe that character one time in the book. Mm -hmm. When we first meet that character, you get a description of them, and then that's it. Focus infinitely more on the voice. The voice of the character is infinitely more important in the sense that that, that character is going to speak all the way through that novel. And so, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that I see with a lot of young writers when they start out is all the characters sound alike. And so you have to listen very, very carefully, you know, to, you know, people. What are the, the word choices that they use, the cadence, the phrasing, everything about the way that they speak, you know, and then utilize those to make the voices in all of your characters, you know, be differentiated from all of the others. In many ways, writing a novel for me is kind of like conducting a choral group. You've got each one of those voices is there for a specific reason. And, you know, you need to utilize those voices to their best. And if you can, like, then you've got, you know, a more varied um, experience, I think, for the reader. What a beautiful way to put it. I've never heard it compared to a choral group. That's, that's great. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I will never read your books the same way. I've been enjoying them immensely, but now I'm going to hear a choral group going on all the time. I'd like to delve into your research process a little bit, Craig. Uh -huh. Our listeners, both readers and writers, enjoy learning how their favorite authors research the details of their books. In your series, we enjoy details related to forensics, Native American traditions, history, various artifacts, and scores of details related to the different characters who emerged throughout the stories. 
How do you research them and keep track of those details? What is your method for that? Oh, I, I, it's definitely like at what I tend to refer to as the creek bed method of research. Look at, and what I mean by that is, is that, you know, I, I don't take a lot of notes when I'm first doing research for a book. I just read anything and everything that has anything to do with the subject matter. And then generally what happens is by the time I get ready to write the book, what it is that I remember, what it is that stands out to me, anything that's different or something... I may not have known. Those are the things that I want to include in a book. Last year's book, uh, The Next to Last Stand, had a great deal to do with the Little Bighorn battle, which took place about 90 minutes up the road here from where my ranch is on the Montana-Wyoming border. You know, I, I knew that that ground had been trod before. I knew that, you know, that boy... There are volumes and volumes of books, you know, about the little bighorn, about Custer, about crazy horse, sitting bull, all of these things. And I thought, you know what, I I don't want to get caught up, you know, in that history so much that all I'm doing is just regurgitating all of that same information back over and over again. And so in many ways, it's always a question of like, well, what's your access point? You know, what is the access point going to be to this particular subject matter? And so whenever I remembered that painting of Cassili Adams, what is euphemistically referred to as the Budweiser painting, um, simply because at one point in time, Budweiser was putting out close to a million copies of that poster and sending them out, you know, to restaurants and bars and saloons, you know, all over the world, as a matter of fact. I mean, I can I can name you six of them that are within an hour's distance, you know, from my ranch right here. And I know you've seen it up on the wall there. Any of the restaurants or saloons. I know you ladies have never been in a bar or saloon, but they have them in restaurants too. For me, you know, I, I started doing a little bit of research on that painting. And it was extraordinary to discover, you know, the history of that paint, when it had been painted, how large it was, um, the amount of detail that went into it that was A, correct, B, incorrect, the, the fate of the painting and what happened to it when it was burned in Fort Bliss in Texas. I mean, all of these things, like, I mean, the history of that painting was almost as dramatic as the history of the battle, which it portrays. And so that became the access point for me as far as Next to Last Stand was concerned. And, you know, it actually involved Walt in his first art heist. Um, so a lot of times, you know, the research can kind of guide you in the direction that you're going to go uh, with a particular book. And then, you know, for me, I have to admit that the joy of the research is one of the, the benefits. I mean, that's one of the, the joys, you know, I mean, you get to sit down. I don't know how many times I'll be over here lying on the sofa in front of the wood burning stove. Probably tonight I'll be doing that with a book in my hands and my wife will look at me and say, are you going to do anything today? And I'll say, I'm working here. I'm working like, as I'm doing all of this research. Like, and, uh, and once again, like that, it's, uh, it's getting you know, paid to do something I would do for free. I mean, I love doing that work and love doing the writing. Like that. And so for me, it's just a blessing in disguise. That's terrific. So wonderful to hear the way you look at that and you pursue it with joy. Fabulous. Thank you, Craig. We also mentioned you do a lot of research, you know, with books, um, with documentaries and all these things, but there's never going to be anything that's going to be quite as good as going out and actually talking to somebody. And so I, I benefit from being in Walt's world. I mean, I live in this area that's, you know, kind of like the Walt Longmire's world. Like, and I have the opportunity, you know, to be able to go up on the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation. I actually spoke uh, to a good friend of mine, Charles Whiteman a tribal elder like that. And his grandfather actually fought in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. So that kind of research, you know, is kind of hard to come by. It's what, you know, you really got to try and put in the book, something a little bit different from what you've been reading, you know, for all these years. Absolutely. Excellent point. You're 
pulling from many different sources to be able to get that historical background and multiple perspectives. We appreciate that. It, it comes Thank through. You. There's a great distinction between the Longmire series books and the Netflix television version. I would imagine it's, it's very difficult as an author to see your extensive, carefully crafted novels condensed <laughs> into these television series. Can you tell us a bit about what that process is like and, and what you've learned about it over time? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was a very, it was a wonderful relationship between the producers and myself. Like that. I mean, they, they were really great. I mean, one of the very first meetings that I had with them, Greer Shepard, main producer of the television show, she sat me down and she said, your books don't break down into a 42-minute teleplay very easily. And I laughed and said, if they did, you shouldn't be reading them. Like, you know, so it's just, you know, the way that you have to approach these type of things. I mean, it's like painting about dance. And you have to come to that realization that it's going to be a different art form. And when we were originally on cable television, you know, they were they were pretty fierce about it being only 42 minutes long. And that was it. And broken up with commercial breaks every 10 minutes. It's really hard to compare a 400-page book, you know, to a 42-page teleplay. There, it's something of a disadvantage. I mean, you know, Hollywood does have, you know, all the the movie stars like it, and uh, you know, all that money like that, you know, for you know, wardrobe and costume and and locations and all those things like that. But the one thing they don't have is the reader's imagination. And uh, that's where I think I've got a little bit of an advantage. I actually enjoyed the process, you know, of working you know, with the actors and, and working with the, the crew, you know, the producers and the directors and everybody that was involved with Longmire. Even so much so now that, you know, we have this thing called Longmire Days that we do uh, here in Buffalo, where we invite all the actors and myself. And they all come up uh, here to Buffalo, Wyoming, a little town of 4,000 people, along with about, you know, 13 or 15,000 of their closest friends. And we have a wonderful time with panels, like getting activities, a softball game, Cowboys versus the Indians. And most generally, the Indians win every year. It's kind of a payback, you know, for the little bighorn. It's just a marvelous thing. And we raise a, a lot of money for charity. As a matter of fact, we just made a donation of $30,000 to the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women's Resource Center up in Lame Deer, Montana. Um, and a number of other charities like that throughout the year, like that, which makes it uh, really worthwhile. But in that process alone, like that, I've become very close friends with an awful lot of the actors that are involved with the show. And uh, we all kind of keep touch with each other. It's kind of wonderful. That's fabulous. You, you've understood that it's a different trajectory and you've looked for ways to leverage it to, to be beneficial. That's fabulous to hear. Thank you, Craig. What suggestions do you have for writers to nurture? And also to grow our craft of writing. What would be your key suggestions for us? Oh, I think, you know, you can get into all the technical aspects of it, but if your heart's not into it, it really doesn't matter. I mean, if you get up in the morning and you dread, you know, going and sitting down, you know, in front of that, you know, uh, empty screen on that computer or that empty page, you know, rolled up into that typewriter, you know, you got a problem on your hands. I guess one of the best ways I've heard it described was actually in a, in a, in a baseball book by Jim Bouton. Um, called Ball Four. And uh, he one time described it, you know, this is a guy, you know, who actually pitched for the New York Yankees, I think it was in 61 or 63 in a World Series. And he was talking about, you know, going out onto the grass after he'd become a professional baseball player. And he told himself, don't ever forget the thrill of the grass. Harkening back to the point in time when he had been playing Little League and remembered, you know, what a thrill 
it is to be able to run out onto that grass like that. And that's kind of how I feel like whenever I sit down to write every day. And I would hope that, you know, anybody who's trying to write feels that thrill, you know, every day, you know, that this is a joy, you know, to, to get up there like that and to, to have this kind of an opportunity. And I guess one of the other stories I think that kind of like describes it maybe in a little bit different, you know, manner was there was uh, someone once asked Picasso, they said, you know, well, you know, are you ever, you know, intimidated, you know, by that blank canvas, you know, when you get up in the morning and he looked at him and says, that blank canvas better be afraid of me when I get up in the morning. Um, <laughs> I'm a firm believer in that. Like that. I, I look at that blank page and just say, I put, I strap on the snowshoes and go, here we go. And uh, for me, it's a joy. It's an absolute joy. And I hope that joy translates. I hope that like readers, you know, feel the same way um, when they pick up one of my books, they just pick it up, open that first page and go, here we go. Uh, that's why we ask these questions, because we believe they cross over. The readers gain enlightenment to how you view your writing and the writers can benefit in how to understand their work. So thank you again, Craig, very much. Cheryl, over oh, to you. <laughs> thank you. And before we open up for questions, I just wanted to ask you about your new release that you have coming out. You, do you want to tell us a little about that? <laughs> the, the, the one that uh, that came out, like that Daughter of the Morning Star, like that is the one that came out this last September. And it deals a lot, you know, with the issue of murdered and missing indigenous women. And, uh, you know, I mean, when you look and find out that, like, according to the FBI's National Crime Investigation Center, that over 5,590 indigenous women went missing last year alone. That, that's kind of horrifying. Like that. And so mm-hmm. whenever I first discovered that, it was actually doing a, a library event up in Hardin, up in Montana on the Crow Reservation. And a good friend of mine, Marcus Red Thunder, who's kind of the model for Henry in the books, he and I were standing in the entryway of uh, the library, getting ready to walk out, you know, where all the people were. And I looked up and there was a bulletin board and a missing persons poster. The, the heart-wrenching part about it, of course, was is that, you know, it had been there for over a year. It had the woman's face, like, it, and it had the information on, you know, where to call. And there was a reward, you know, for anything leading to her, her discovery, and uh, the heart-wrenching thing about it was is that half of her face was gone. Whenever the sun, you know, would come through the glass doors there at the library in Hardin, it would circle around all the way around that entryway and get halfway across that bulletin board before, you know, nighttime came. And it had faded that half of her face off. It was just kind of gut-wrenching, like, I had to see mm-hmm. that. And that, it was a couple of years back. Like, it, it got me started on the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women like that. And so it's one thing to have a cause. It's one thing to have a social issue that you want to take a crack at, but you also have to have a plot. You have to have some kind of a storyline to utilize like that. And so for me, like that, I got invited by uh, a good friend of mine, Tiger Scalp Kane up to Lame Deer, where he's the athletic director for the high school up there. And his daughter happened to be playing. And it was actually Lame Deer versus a lodge grass. For those who don't know, like that's the Cheyenne versus the Crow. And anybody who thinks that the Indian wars are over, needs to go see a girls basketball game on the res like that, because I'd never seen so many hip checks and elbows and headbutts in my entire life. <laughs> it was a very aggressive form of basketball like and, and truly a joy to watch like that, because mm-hmm. I mean, these young women were just so, so ferocious in what it was that they were doing and so committed, you know, to these games mm-hmm. like that. And just the athleticism and the beauty uh, of the game, you know, that they played was just stunning to me. And I remember walking out of there that night and looking at Judy and saying, Okay, that's the story. So what happens, you know, in uh, Daughter of the Morning Star is is that uh, there's a young basketball player by the name of Jaya Long, and she uh, starts receiving death threats. 
And this is something that has to be taken you know, very seriously simply because um, she had a sister, an older sister who disappeared more than a year you know, before she disappeared. She was receiving these same type of death threats. And so Lolo Long, the, uh, the tribal police chief, you know, the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, gets in touch with Henry and with Walt and says, I, I need somebody to come up here and maybe draw a little bit of a, an investigation into this situation and also maybe do a little bit of bodyguard work, too. And so Walt and Henry find themselves maybe in the most dangerous situation they've ever been in in their lives, on a bus with, in, with an entire uh, team of teenage girls. You know, they've faced some desperate situations, but they've never been in that kind of, like, uh, hardened situation before. Like that. And so uh, and there's a lot of social issues. There's a lot of humor, a lot of activity, like a lot of action in the books. And, uh, and I hope that people will enjoy it. Daughter of the Morning started really, really well on the New York Times bestsellers list, like that, and, uh, and continues to be selling very well, like that, and getting uh, – uh, numerous, you know, marvelous reviews. Okay. And so uh, hopefully if you can see it out there, pick up a copy and give it a read. I just want to have a follow-up question with that. And when you're writing something like that, um, I mean, how can you not be emotionally involved? <laughs> do you debrief with Judy after sometimes about it? I mean, how do you take care of your psyche sometimes if you get into something that, you know, might be uncomfortable? Well, I mean, it's obviously you know, writing murder mysteries like that. You're, you're going to come across, you know, certain characters and social issues that are going to be somewhat unpalatable like that. You always have to treat those, you know, with the responsibility of, you know, being honest about them like that and being true mm-hmm. to the difficulties that the layering that they put onto society. And, you know, with that issue is extraordinarily difficult for me simply because it's, you know, it's, it's violence against women, which I have a, mm-hmm. a problem with simply because I'm married. I have two daughters. I have a granddaughter like that. And I can't imagine, you know, what it would be like, mm-hmm. you know, to have someone that you care about and someone that you love um, just simply disappear and not be able to know what happened to them. If they're okay, if, you know, did they suffer, you know, all of these things that would plague you, you know, for the rest of your life, you know, whenever I'm writing those type of things, I'll just be honest with you. It's difficult. It's difficult mm. and it's hard. And uh, an awful lot of the time, you know, Judy will know, uh, you know, if I come down out of the loft you know, and I've been writing something that's, you know, violent or horrifying or something like that, it's, it's, it puts me in a bad mood. There's no two ways mm. about it. You know, if you have that energy, like that, you know, pent up like that, you know, if you live on a ranch, there's always somewhere you can go and spend that energy, either working on the mm. irrigation like that, or refencing or, you know, uh, any number of things that might require some of that energy that you have pent up there, like to get yourself back on an even keel. But, mm. you know, I'm also a, a firm believer in human nature and injustice. You know, I, I think as a general rule, people are good can count on them to do the right thing. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, in Absaroka County, if they don't do the right thing, then they're probably going to have Walt Longmire looking after them. <laughs> you don't ever want that. And thank you for your honesty. I appreciate it. Chanel, first up, we have somebody by the name of J-U-D-O-Y. Somehow Judy got translated with that extra O in it. Mr. Johnson, I'm a former professor of English, very snobby, and I thought I will never read Western murder mysteries until somebody I greatly respected said, you're really missing out not reading this series. So I thank you and I thank my friend for letting me know about your books. My question has to do with, I love that you know uh, a character like Henry so well that you can uh, go back and forth with these sort of affectionate and wonderful insults. So I was just wondering, how have your books been received in the, in the uh, 
um, Indian communities? And what kind of feedback do you get about about the way you portray uh, such, such folk? The, the first part of your question, I'll, I'll just throw something in here, like that I have to admit that like Walt Longmire probably would have been much happier if he had been teaching in, you know, a small um, liberal arts college like at or, you know, owning a bookstore or something like that. But, you know, with Vietnam, he ended up being a Marine investigator and instead had a, a, a badge pinned to him like that. And it's been there, you know, for quite some time like that. But uh, I agree with you like that. It's it's kind of interesting like that to have a Western character who is well read like it's kind of a challenge like that. But uh, I also have to laugh like that because I think back uh, to Louis L'Amour um, who was I think you know pretty accurate in his portrayal of cowboy life like that I uh, when you know whenever cowboys you know would always you know get off the trail like that and go winter up is the term that they use up here in Wyoming and Montana one of the things they would always take with them was a stack of books a lot of these cowboys were extraordinarily you know well read they were self-educated like that but you know they they really read some marvelous stuff it, within louis lamour the most referred to book that cowboys are reading i think is plutarch's lives you know which is you know, really a wonderful thing to be you know have cowboys in that period reading in answer to your question though i've been extraordinarily fortunate like that in that my ranch is just immediately to the south of the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation. I have so many friends and family up on those reservations that, you know, being able to include them in the books, like it is, you know, really what makes a lot of it worthwhile. Um, Those relationships, those friendships, you know, to be able to introduce people, you know, to those cultures, like in those societies is just a joy. The books are extraordinarily popular, as is the TV show up on the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite stories, I got asked to write the commencement speech for the Northern Cheyenne's uh, high school graduation. And I wrote the speech, and then they wanted me to come up and deliver it. And I wasn't able to make it because I was on a book tour in Europe. And if I turn down one of those book tours in Europe, like I'm going to be a a divorced man in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25, and that is a grim prospect. And so I, you know, told him, like, I can't come. Here's the speech, but I can't deliver it. Well, the next week I was down in Santa Fe where they were filming Longmire. And, you know, Lou Diamond Phillips comes up to me. And the first thing Lou always says is what's going on on the res. And I said, I wrote this speech, you know, for the, the Northern Cheyenne, you know, graduation and ceremonies, and, I, and I'm not going to be able to be there to deliver it. And he didn't even pause for a second. He just says, when is it? And about, you know, three or four weeks later, Lou Diamond Phillips on his own dime flew up to Billings, Montana, jumped in a rental car, drove down to Lame Deer and delivered the speech for me. And they had the largest crowd they had ever had uh, at the Northern Cheyenne commencement. <laughs> if I'd been there, there'd have been 50 people. They even had, you know, some students who had stayed in school to graduate simply so that they could meet Lou Diamond Phillips. Like, and uh, that, that was really kind of wonderful, I have to admit. Next person we have is Cindy. The question I've had for years is, how do you write your books? Do you write it like in order, like chapter one, chapter two, or do you just write and then figure it out later? Okay, I'm going to put this over here and that over there, you know, this at the end and that beginning. How do you do that? That that is a really really good question. Like that, Cindy. I got to tell you, like, and uh, I write mine chronologically. <laughs> I sit down and I uh, make an outline for the book. Probably tells you, you know, a little bit about my limitations, you know, intellectually. You know, I need that. I, I need a roadmap. I'm always telling young you know, writers, if you and I jumped in my truck and said, hey, we're going to drive down to Jacksonville, Florida from Wyoming, 
and and I would look at you and say, yeah, let's not take a map like that. I, I would hope, Cindy, you would look at me and say, let's take a map, okay? And so even if we don't use it, let's have it in the glove boxes in case we need it later on. And I think that that's kind of what, you know, a, an outline you know means to me. It gives me that opportunity to know what's going to happen next. I know what, you know, where that book's going to go and what's going to happen. It guards against a couple of things. The first one being writer's block, which I don't think really exists. All writer's block is just not knowing what happens next. Well, if you've got an outline... You always know what's happening next. The other one is uh, pacing, which a lot of writing programs and uh, a lot of teachers don't discuss because it's kind of a tough thing to teach. You know, it's one of those things that you kind of have to, you know, come to from practice. And, you know, the only way that you can kind of see what the pacing of a novel is going to be is by looking at that outline. I mean, if you look at that outline and you say, wow, all the action seems to take place, you know, in the latter part of this book, maybe I need to move some of this up or, you know, an awful lot of the backstory, you know, for these characters saying, you know, boy, seems to happen at the end of the book. I kind of need to move this around. It gives you the opportunity to move those pieces around without happening to completely rewrite the book, which is one of the things to me that essential, you know, to trying to write a good book. Then, you know, after you do all that preparation, you just kind of have to be open to the idea that there's going to be uh, some improvisational moments, you know, along the way. You know, you start writing a book and you think you know what that book is about. But I can guarantee you that writing a book in many ways is kind of like going on that that road trip that I was talking about where you and I were going to jump in my truck and head to Jacksonville. Well, things are going to happen along the way. You're going to discover things along the way. That's the magic of the writing process. And I think that, you know, you, you look forward to those improvisational moments. And that's when you get to change the outline a little bit. Now, I remember when I wrote the first book, The Cold Dish. Boy, I hung on to that outline and I didn't want to change anything in it. And I was about maybe, I don't know, halfway through that book or maybe two thirds of the way through that book when something happened that I hadn't planned on. And I thought, where'd that come from? I thought to myself, you know what, maybe maybe you see where this goes. Maybe you see what's happening here. I've got some theories about that. You know, a lot of people say, you know, oh, I hear the characters and they start talking to me and, you know, my books. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, people who sit in a room by themselves and hear voices, that kind of worries me a little bit. I think what it really boils down to is, is just it's your subconscious <laughs> mind. I mean, your conscious mind is doing all the work. It's making the outline. It's doing all the work to, you know, to get the book written like that. And there's your poor subconscious mind that's kind of riding along like a backseat driver like that with all these ideas and all. It has all the same information that, you know, that the driver has like that. And so every once in a while, it has to throw something over the seat like, you know, to, to kind of change the direction of things like that, to, to kind of spice things up a little bit. And what you'll discover is, is that the more you write, the more open to those type of things you'll be. Next, Don Wirth. Yes, thank you. Really love your books, especially the the interaction of actuality and spiritualism in in some of those books. As you mentioned, Walt is a veteran of the Vietnam War. So that means he's getting a few years on him. Does that create difficulties in creating some of the situations that he's into because as he ages? And then a couple of quick uh, comments that you don't need to respond to. But after your earlier comments, will we see Walt running into a group of blind folks as in part of your books? And finally, (laughs) do you have a good source for your Pappy Van Winkle? (laughs) (laughs) uh, For those of you who don't know, thank you so much for that question. Like, boy, let's see if I can get it all in here. Like, for those of you who don't know, in the bourbon world, the Holy Grail 
is the Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve 23-year-old. For those of the uninitiated, like it's become very, very difficult to get. Back when I first started writing the books in 2005, like it, it, you know, you could just go out and buy a bottle of it, no problem at all. And then the New York Times came up with a list of the top 10 bourbons ever produced. The Wall Street Journal came up with a list of the top 10 bourbons ever produced. And they all named, you know, the 23-year-old Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve as the number one. Well, then suddenly you couldn't buy it anywhere. I'm fortunate enough yet that I have some close readers like that who have deigned to allow me like that to mooch some off of them on a regular basis. I have to tell you one quick story. One time my wife and I were going through Kentucky, and this is long before I'd ever even started writing the books, and we stayed at the Brown Hotel, you know, this marvelous old venerable hotel there right in downtown Louisville. I carried the bags up and we're checking in. And I looked behind me and there was a set of stairs leading up to the mezzanine up above like it. And there was a small bar over in the corner. And I looked at the woman behind the desk and I said, well, now, is that the only bar, you know, here in the hotel? And she goes, no, that's our bourbon boutique. That's a bar that only serves, you know, Kentucky bourbon. That's the only thing they have up there. And I was like, oh, okay. So I finished checking in and I grabbed the bags and I start going up the steps up the mezzanine. I get to that little, little bar like that. And Judy looks at me and says, you know, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go find out about bourbon. What do you know about bourbon? She goes, nothing. And I said, me either. But that little old guy up there, he knows everything there is to know about bourbon. Let's go ask him. So we get up there. And he looked like he'd been there since Prohibition. And I said, well, my good man, what's the finest bourbon you've ever had? And he said, that would be the Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve, the 23-year-old, sir. And I said, well, better give us a tumbler of that. And he looked at my torn up blue jeans and my you know, thin elbows and my snap front shirt, and my battered cowboy hat and beat up cowboy boots and said, it's $75 a tumbler, sir. And obviously he'd never met a cowboy before because I looked him square in the eye and said, well, I guess you better make it two then. And then thank goodness I caught his arm before he poured another one <laughs> because I don't think the truck that I was driving at that point in time was worth $150. But that's how you know I, I learned about Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve. And so whenever the old sheriff, Lucian Connolly, needed a special liquor to keep in his corner cabinet there at the Durant Home for Assisted Living, it seemed like you know that that would probably be it. Now to go back to the more bulk of your question, age. I knew that probably Walt and Henry really needed to have some kind of a military history simply because of the the things that I was going to be involving them with, you know, in that first book, The Cold Dish. And for me, it made somewhat of a, a sadder but wiser kind of character for them to be involved with the Vietnam War. And so that's where I place those characters. And now as time goes by, you know, it has gotten a little bit later in life. The only thing that saved me in many ways um, from having to confront with the age of those characters is that when I very first started out, I was fortunate enough to have a short story that was in Cowboys and Indians magazine and won the Tony Hillerman Cowboys and Indians magazine mystery short story award. And one of the benefits of that was, is I actually got to go and have dinner with Tony Hillerman, who is one of the most charming and gracious men that you could have ever possibly wanted to have met. You know, I, I had just only written one book and he was, you know, on book, you know, 20 or something like that. When I spoke with him, I asked him, I said, you know, how do you do this? How do you continue with this? How do you keep it you know, fresh? How do you keep it alive? His response was, is, you know, well, you know, at the risk of sounding like a bad sports analogy, you know, you've got to play them up one at a time, make each one different from all of the others that you've done before. But he also said, you know what, you also need to find, if you can, some kind of a framework, you know, to kind of like put the, the novels up against. And so I thought about it and I thought, well, what's the thing that has the largest scale effect on us out here on the high plains? Like, you know, and I'm facing it later today with, a, you know, a storm coming in, you know, around 5 p.m., and that would be the weather. 
And so I decided that I would do the Longmire books in what I refer to as the Vivaldi. And so what I do is each one of the books has a season. And each one of those seasons gives me a completely different environment for each one of the books. January in Wyoming is nothing at all like July in Wyoming. And so those different environs like that, you know, lead me to choose different books, but also had one unexpected benefit in that it takes me four books to get through one year of Walt's life. And so in the time that I've known Walt after 17 years, he's only three years older than when I first met him. At some point in time, I'm going to be older than Walt. And I don't know if I like that idea at all. But yeah, it's one of those things that kind of retarded that aging process, makes him available to us all, you know, for a little bit more than maybe we would have. Hi, Craig. This is Catherine Johnson. I'm your neighbor. I live in Fort Collins, and I had the pleasure of meeting you when you came to the library in Greeley, Colorado. I really enjoy the Longmire series on TV. I've read all of your books, and I like the series so much that I rewatch um, the episodes because I am almost ready to end the the series. I'm on episode five of season five, and so I mean season six. So um, I really thank you for that. My question is: Will you be doing another uh, series in the future for TV? Thank you. You bet. Thank you so much. Like we love Fort Collins, that whole area. She she's on the on that I twenty five corridor, like that, that that runs all the way from northern Wyoming all the way down, like it and past and through Denver, like that. And so I love doing those events. And library events are very important to me too. You know, in many ways, like that because you know, you know, we have a lot of smaller libraries. You know, here in Wyoming. Years ago, I remember the first library to ever get in touch with me was actually in Matitsi, Wyoming a little town of 351 people over in the western part of the state. They they wrote me an email. You know, this is back when emails first started. And they said, you know, we really love your books. Is there any way that we can get you to come over and do a library event? And I'd never been asked by a library to do anything. So I was delighted with the opportunity. And I wrote her back immediately. Diana Chapman was the, the librarian there. And I said, absolutely, I'd be happy to come over and do a library event with you guys. And she wrote me back and said, well, we don't have a lot of money. We're just a branch library out of Cody. Um, what do you charge as an honoraria? And so I you know, thought about it for a moment and then I wrote her back and I said, well, you know, once you reach a certain level of literary notoriety, you know, it's very difficult, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to name your own honorarium like it. And I said, mine is actually a six pack of Rainier beer cans preferred. Well, the problem was that got in all of the newspapers in Wyoming. And subsequently, I have done all of the libraries in Wyoming, uh, all the way across the state. Like, I guess, you know, but before you applaud my efforts, you should probably know that I haven't bought beer in about 17 years. Like, so it's worked out to be mutually beneficial for both parties. Like, so, um, and in answer to your question, like, that, um, as far as Longmire is concerned, like, at the success of the television show, like, that we're, we've kind of become victims of the success of our television show. Longmire, you know, production here about four years ago after six years of production and six seasons again and we're still one of the top 20 shows on netflix we're one of the top 20 original content shows on netflix four years after ceasing production like that which is really a wonderful thing like that but it kind of makes it difficult because you know warner brothers and netflix don't really want to jump on and make more until you know maybe those ratings drop down a little bit like that but i'm constantly of hopes like that that somebody over there at, at warner brothers um will look around and go you know gee whiz we've got one of the top 20 original content shows on Netflix, you know, four years after it ceased production, maybe we should do some more of these. And uh, from what I've heard, like at the producers are very, you know, hep to the idea of uh, continuing and doing more episodes. And I know that the actors 
are extraordinarily enthusiastic about getting back in the saddle like that and uh, and continuing and reprising those roles like that. So you never can tell. It, it could very well happen. So keep your fingers crossed. Well, you know what? We probably could have made it clear from the beginning that it takes me about 20 minutes to answer each question. And so we probably only be able to answer three questions. Like, that's why I apologize to those of you who didn't get your answers. You know, jump on, you know, craigallenjohnson.com, C-R-A-I-G-A-L-L-E-N-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. That's my website. Like that. And uh, if you hit the contact button at my website, that's my email. That's my email right here at the ranch. Like and I always laugh, you know, because I get these emails that start off with whoever it is that answers Mr. Johnson's emails. And I'm always staring at the computer here at the ranch and going, well, that would be me. So uh, if you didn't get your question, you know, answered here today, please feel free to jump on the website and, and, and throw me an email. Thank you so much for that. It's such an extraordinary group and such a wonderful show. Like, there's no yes. way that I would turn something like this down. And thank, thank you, you again Good. for having me. Here's the prompt. <laughs> Next week, folks, is our open mic. So here's your opportunity. Write a response to this prompt if you don't have something else to bring to the open mic and share it with us. Insert yourself into the role <laughs> of a Wyoming sheriff. And share a scene from your life with us. We're going to become Walt or Willowis Longmire for the day. And you take on that persona and share it with us. Thank you, Craig, and everybody for providing such a wonderful show for us today. And for our listeners, don't miss next Friday. March 11th is our open mic. And March 18th, we tip our hats to St. Patty's Day because we have a very special interview with Tabitha Kenlin, who is currently residing in Dublin, Ireland. And we'll be talking about the inside look at book clubs for both readers and writers. What do we learn from participating in book clubs? Be sure to visit writingworkswonders.com for these show notes, resources, and previous episodes. You'll also find many opportunities to participate in Writing Works Wonders events. Thank you for joining us today on Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. A tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. You can also tap on the link for writingworkswonders.com. It'll take you directly to all the show notes and information that we shared today. Then you can sign up to receive the Zoom link so that you can be live with us when we are recording. You can also contact us at info at writingworkswonders.com. Our phone number is 347-467-0221. We also have a donate button. All donations go to technical expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep this podcast going. Kathy and I want you to feel encouraged and inspired and know the wonder in writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.